I was commenting earlier, I love the, sa- the Saturday sessions because it's our one chance of the year to meet on the real Sabbath. But that's just a little uh, Old Testament thing that I like. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And while you're finding that text, let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come to you this morning thankful for the Word of God and the clarity with which you present the truths of yourself and of your Son and of your Spirit. And this morning we would focus on your Son and we would look at the incredible sacrifice that He made to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. We pray that it would be thrilling to our hearts and you would make us into greater worshipers as a result, more humble, more eager to please our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be in Philippians 2 in just a few minutes, but first I want to try to describe the indescribable. It's a moment that's really impossible to describe describe because no one but God was there. It was a moment that's equal, if not greater in splendor and majesty and awe than the actual creation itself. The moment happened simultaneously in heaven and on earth at the same time. The moment in heaven is purely a matter of educated theological speculation, and the moment on earth is so mysterious and so incomprehensible that all we can do is describe what little we do know about it. Here's the scene in heaven before the moment. The eternal Son of God is seated on His glorious throne with the transcendent glory that He's enjoyed with His Father for all the ages past. The scene looks something like this as described in Isaiah 6. The Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a throne high and lifted up with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face and with two He covered His feet and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. The heavenly and the holy and the highest, the one through whom God the Father created all things, created the heavens and the earth, the heavenly and the holy and the highest who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, eternal, Righteous, good, gracious, merciful, wrathful. The one who will be the judge of all people at the end of the age. The heavenly and the holy and the highest. The Son of God who loves His Father with an infinite love. Submitted willingly and lovingly to His Father's plan. And the heavenly and the holy and the highest became human. We can only speculate what the moment was like when the heavenly and the holy and the highest came down to be earthly, to be among the unholy, and to be the lowest. And the scene on earth at that same moment is equally mysterious. A young, unmarried virgin woman in her early teens from a humble family in the northern province of Galilee, at precisely the time ordained by God, A single egg had been prepared in the womb of this young woman and in an incomprehensible moment, 
the heavenly and the holy and the highest, the one who created galaxies and stars and planets, limited himself to a single cell in the divinely impregnated egg of this young woman. And in that moment, when God the Son added a developing physical body and the nature of a man to his eternal divine nature, in that moment when the heavenly and the holy and the highest became human, two of the most revered and honored and distinguished and illustrious doctrines of the Christian faith came to fruition at exactly the same time. The doctrine of the virgin conception, more popularly called the virgin birth, and the doctrine of the self-emptying of Christ. Both of these mind-shattering truths find their beginning in a quiet moment in the womb of a teenage girl from a humble family in Galilee in which the heavenly became human. And so it makes sense for us to deal with these two doctrines together. I'd like to examine these two foundational doctrines really upon which the humanity of Christ depends Now, before we get into that, just briefly, a couple of introductory thoughts to help our thinking on this issue. Last night, we spoke in general terms of the humanity of Christ. We focused on the hypostatic union, that Christ is one person with two natures, divine and human. Let me briefly differentiate between some terms to be a little more precise. We saw that the hypostatic union, that's a theological term that means that Christ is one person with two natures, which are never in conflict with one another, And we use the word incarnation, but we didn't ever define it. The incarnation, the theological term is that it's the whole shebang. It's the whole package of the deal of God manifesting himself in human flesh. It is the act of subtraction by addition. God the Son adding a human nature in the human body to his eternal existence And then we have the term the virgin birth, more precisely the virgin conception, is how God brought about the incarnation in the hypostatic union of Christ. And we'll delve into that this morning, but I'm going to maintain my position from last night that at at the end of the day, the union of God with humanity is an incomprehensible mystery, which we really can't explain it. All we can do is describe what the Bible says. And it takes an act of faith to believe God in this. And so with those initial thoughts taken care of, let's divide our time this morning to get our main day started and just into three easy parts. First, the self-emptying of Christ. Second, the virgin birth of Christ. And I'd like to finish my time this morning with two heart-searching questions for you. Because these doctrines matter and they matter greatly for your lives. So the self-emptying of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, and two heart-searching questions. First, let's look at the self-emptying of Christ and For this, of course, there's but one grand central station for this doctrine, and that is Philippians chapter 2. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus possessed perfect glory with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity past. He never had a beginning. In heaven, Jesus possessed a throne room 
Revelation 4 describes it as, as something sparkling like jewels, surrounded by an emerald rainbow. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. The Spirit of God lit the throne room as with torches. The floor appeared to be a sea of glass and angels, as we read from Isaiah 6, are, are flying around crying out the holiness and the majesty of God. And we know from John chapter 12, they're crying out the holy, holy, holiness of God the Son. And from this glory, the Son of God stepped down in an act of self-emptying. And I'd like to just divide this self-emptying into two parts this morning that we'll emphasize. There's much more to be said, but I'll just focus on these two parts. The first part, he denied himself the benefits of deity. He denied himself the benefits of deity. In eternity past, never having the beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship and communion Love, peace, joy, glory, beauty together. God has no need of time. He has no need of space. He has no need of matter. It was just God. Paul says in verse 6 here that Jesus was existing in the form of God. This is a word that means having all the essential characteristics, all the essence of all that God is, Jesus is. Jesus is, always has been, and always will be fully divine. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And here in Philippians 2, verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And interestingly, equality in Greek is plural. The equalities with God, that in every way that God is God, Jesus is God. This first openly states that Jesus is equal to God, but what does it mean that Jesus did not count the equalities with God a thing to be grasped? It means that Christ chose not to please Himself. Mankind was dying in his sin and Jesus was the answer. He didn't view His own comfort, His own perfect joy in heaven with His Father as more important than His obedience to His Father. He didn't keep hold of, He didn't clutch onto his privileged position with all the rights and privileges and entitlements that are afforded him in his fullness of God. And shockingly, he became a servant of all who would believe on him. That the one who ought to be served became a servant. And the result of this in verse 7, he emptied himself. This is the Greek verb ekinosin from the root kanao. It means to make empty to deprive oneself of your own possessions. And from this word is the concept that theologians call the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, the kenosis. I want you to notice something here. This is very important. Paul doesn't say that Jesus emptied something from himself or emptied something out of himself. No, he emptied himself. He poured himself. He gave all that he is. Nothing was taken away from God the Son, but humanity was added. And he emptied himself by adding this human nature and a human body to himself. Jesus never gave up being God. He didn't diminish his deity or his glory, but he concealed his glory. I want to be very clear about this. This doesn't mean that Jesus ever tried to hide who he was. He never did that. He never minimized his deity. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus 
John 5.18 says, Because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Matthew 9, verse 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. His authority. In John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Making himself nothing didn't mean he tried to conceal the fact of his deity. He simply concealed the glory of his deity. What he did do is this. He set himself voluntarily on a path he didn't have to walk. And that was a path toward death. In light of being fully God, to become like one of his own creations is really the ultimate in condescension and humiliation. He didn't take advantage of his position as God. The night Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers came for him and Jesus friend Peter drew his sword and attacked those coming to get Jesus and you recall that Jesus stopped Peter and told him or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels as 72,000 angels and why would Jesus have immediate access to 72,000 angels if he wanted because he's the commander of the hosts of heaven and only God has that position you realize that at any time Jesus could have stopped the whole thing He could have simply said enough and the world would have stopped. He could have called his legions of angels. He could have avoided being arrested and being on trial. He could have stopped the nails. He could have stopped the cross. He could have stopped the suffering. He could have blown a breath on the earth and burned it to bits and started over. But he didn't. You see, Jesus never ceased having all the divine attributes of God. He simply didn't exercise those attributes to the fullest extent. He exercised them on a limited basis as part of his ministry on earth. We see this numerous times in the gospel, Gospels, but he never revealed his complete full glory except perhaps one brief time on the Mount of Transfiguration. Instead, he emptied himself. He gave all of himself. He made himself nothing He gave up all that heaven had for him. The riches of heaven, the worship of heaven, the comfort of heaven, the delight of being immediately in the presence of his father from eternity past. He gave it up to do what? That's the second part of the kenosis we'll consider. He gave up the glory of heaven to take the form of a man. He took the form of a man. Verse 7 describes this in detail. First of all, by saying, taking the form of a slave. This is the same word as the form of God in verse 6. That Jesus is fully and totally God in verse 6. And he's fully and totally a doulos, a slave of God the Father. Jesus said of himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus owned nothing on this earth, which is quite amazing since he created all of it. But he didn't come to earth to acquire things. He came to earth to acquire citizens. Citizens for his kingdom to redeem the lost by being the sole and only qualified substitutionary death for sin on the cross. Philippians goes on to say, by being made in the likeness of men. In verse 7, he grew up like any boy. He suffered all the limitations and problems except for sin that any man would suffer. 
He was trained by his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, to be a carpenter. He worked with his hands in a manual labor job. All that we are, he became. Why? Hebrews 2.17 tells us that he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. People were familiar with Jesus the way we're familiar with each other. If I could put it this way, Jesus was common. He was common. He wouldn't have stood out in the crowd. Isaiah 53, 2 confirms this. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He came as an ordinary man, but he came with an extraordinary mission. And that was the self-emptying of, of Christ didn't stop at Jesus denying himself the benefit of deity and taking the form of a man. He emptied himself. He gave all of himself for what? To die as a man dies. Verse 8, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I want to be very clear about this. The death of Christ was not forced upon him. It was completely his choice to obey every facet of his father's plan. John 10, verse 17 says, For this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. He not only came to die, to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is thought by many to be the most horrible way to die ever invented. The kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, the humbling of Himself by adding human flesh and human nature to Himself. It's virtually inconceivable that God would do this, and yet He did. For our sakes, He did. And what about that miraculous moment in in which the Son of God also became Son of Man when He took on flesh? Let's examine the virgin birth of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I want to divide our thinking here into three parts. We're going to look at the why, the who, and the what. The why, the who, and the what. Why do we believe the virgin birth? Who was involved in the virgin birth? And what is the significance of the virgin birth? So let's just walk through those questions. Why do we believe the virgin birth? There are many good reasons. I've boiled it down to four good and powerful reasons. And one great and overwhelming reason. So five total. Why do we believe the virgin birth? First, the historical reason. The historical reason. The church has universally believed the virgin birth until liberal theology of the mid-19th century began to question all things supernatural. Ignatius of Antioch, the head pastor of the church in Syrian Antioch, who was martyred around 117 A.D., He wrote a summary of key doctrinal facts about Christ and concerning the virgin birth, Ignatius called this truth one of the, quote, mysteries to be shouted about. The church universally has believed the virgin birth until liberalism of the mid-19th century. It's the second reason we believe the virgin birth. We'll call this the consistency reason. The consistency reason. Where, Where do we find the truth about all things, about God and about our faith? It's in the Bible. 
the, the truth about Christianity is contained in a book which teaches of a God who has no beginning, no ending, who created all things from absolutely nothing. This book teaches a God-ordained worldwide flood, the fact that God instantly created the variety of languages in the, in the world at the Tower of Babel. He caused the miraculous conception of Isaac and that his mother Sarah was decades past childbearing age. If we went through quickly through the Old Testament, we see miracles of nature on an epic scale in the ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the sun standing still for a day, legions of angels revealed to one of the Lord's servants, prophets healing the sick and raising the dead. How about this one? The prophet flying up to heaven alive. In the life of Jesus himself, we see him walking on water, multiplying food miraculously for tens of thousands, healing the sick, raising the dead, predicting and bringing about his own resurrection, and Jesus flying up to heaven alive. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is glorious, but in the scheme of everything else we see in Scripture, it's just kind of on par with everything else. It's not really surprising. It is, in fact, very consistent with the level of the miracle which begins the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a third reason we believe the virgin birth, and we'll call this one the mom reason. The mom reason. If Mary were here and we could interview her, if we asked her the question, do you consider yourself sinless? She would say no. She didn't consider herself sinless or unique. She affirmed in Luke chapter 1 that she needed a savior. Acts 1.14, after the ascension of Christ into heaven, we get one last peek into the life of Mary and she's simply a part of the group of worshipers of Christ. Now here's why this is the mom reason. If anybody on planet earth would have known that Joseph is actually the father of Jesus, it would have been Mary. And if Mary secretly knew that Joseph was actually the father of Jesus and just allowed the myth of Jesus' virgin conception to be perpetuated, do you think she would worship Jesus? No. Logically, she could not. Not a chance. Her song in Luke chapter 1 reveals her to be a godly woman who credits God with the baby in her womb. And thus she worships. There's a fourth reason we'll call the holiness reason. The holiness reason says that a natural conception quite simply would have meant a sinful savior. That's a moral and theological impossibility. John 3 verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Romans 5 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the holiness reason says that a natural conception means you can't have a Savior that way. Now, with even just the historical reason, the consistency reason, the mom reason, and the holiness reason, all of those are plenty of good, plenty good and, and powerful reasons to believe the virgin birth of Christ, but none of those reasons carries the weight and the final authority of the fifth reason, a great and overwhelming reason, and that, of course, is the scriptural reason. The scriptural reason. The scriptural reason says that, that the Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth of Christ. Let's just begin in Matthew 1, verse 16. Matthew 1, 16 and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the, mother, the husband of Mary, 
by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. By whom or out of whom Jesus was born. This makes a very clear delineation that Mary was Jesus' mother, but Joseph was not his biological father. Look with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to notice a key fact here. Joseph knew he was not the father of this child. Notice another key fact. Heaven declared that, that the child was conceived in her by the Spirit of God. And heaven had already given the child a human name, Jesus, the Savior. Going on in verse 22. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The virgin birth wasn't a whim of God. It wasn't a last-minute game-time decision. It was the plan of God. And Matthew's inspired account here tells us that the prophetic word of Isaiah 7.14 ultimately and then finally is applied to the actual virgin conception. And you noticed in verse 21, the child received a human name as a human being, and yet he's affirmed to be the very Son of God, God with humanity. And in verse 25, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. To hammer the point home, this account ends with the fact that Mary was a virgin until Jesus was born. But we don't rely on just one detailed account of the virgin birth. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We get a second account. In Luke chapter 1, look with me at Verses 26 and 27. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Verse 31, the angel tells her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Verse 34, but Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel is commissioned by God himself to go give a message to Mary. And the text could not be clearer to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. I am a virgin. Notice, by the way, in verse 31, that Mary is told that she will conceive. She's not just a surrogate in which God is borrowing her womb for a child that's not hers. She is the actual biological mother of Jesus. Now, a skeptic might say, well, only two Gospels tell the story of the virgin birth. I can't believe it just based on two Gospels. Well, let me answer that skepticism in two ways. First of all, I want you to notice, as we read both of these, Matthew's account and Luke's account are completely different in their presentation and in their emphasis. They come at the virgin birth from totally different angles 
and yet they're in total agreement about the virgin birth. There's no possibility that somehow Matthew and Luke corroborated and collaborated to make up one story. The two accounts are independent of each other, and they're totally different. Matthew focuses on Joseph. Luke focuses on Mary. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream, but the angel appears to Mary in person. Joseph was corrected and silent. Mary was commended and had a conversation with the angel. Joseph was given minimal details about the purposes of Jesus, while Mary is told in Luke 1.32 that Jesus would reign on the throne of his human ancestor David, he would reign over Israel forever, and that his kingdom would have no end. There's a second answer to any skepticism that only two accounts mention the virgin birth. Other scriptures point us to the virgin birth. I don't have time for you to do this. We, we won't have time to turn to all of these, but just listen in survey form here. In Luke 3.23, Luke's genealogy of Jesus begins. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age being, listen to this, as was supposed the son of Joseph. This is a phrase that means so they thought. In Mark 6, Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth is doing the work of the ministry and those he grew up around don't take him seriously. In Mark 6, is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And they were taking offense at him. Now, some have said that they're calling Jesus the son of Mary because Joseph was likely not alive by that point. But that is never the pattern in Scripture or of Judaism as a whole because they highly valued the father's ancestral line And in Scripture, men are always their father's son, even after their fathers are long dead. But when the man's father was unknown or generally thought to be a mystery, the man was referred to as the son of his mother. And so this is considered an insult. They didn't believe that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. How about John 8, 41? The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking They made a condescending jab at him, an indirect insult when they proclaimed about themselves, we were not born of sexual immorality. Their implication being that Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. In John 9, 29, the Jews said of Jesus, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. In other words, we don't know who his dad is. Paul asserted in Galatians 4, 4, that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, meaning that Jesus was conceived as a man at the exact moment ordained by God. And Paul is clear that Jesus was born of woman, not man and woman. This is mind-blowing. In Hebrews 10, 5, Christ is pictured as saying of God the Father, to God the Father rather, a body you have prepared for me. The direct action of God in the conception of Jesus. And then, of course, Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of a coming Savior, is very clear, very precise, that the coming Savior who will defeat Satan is the seed of what? Woman. So, far from being some obscure idea which hangs on a verse or two, the biblical evidence, the scriptural reason to believe the virgin birth is overwhelming. That answers the question, why do we believe the virgin birth? The second question I'd like to look at is, who is involved in the virgin birth? Who is involved? We've clearly established Mary as involved. It was literally her seed which miraculously was embedded with life. But you you likely notice that both the Matthew and the Luke accounts 
the Holy Spirit is said to have come upon Mary. Luke one thirty five. this is a Greek word that means to arrive at a point in time. Matthew one twenty says that Jesus was from the Holy Spirit, out of the Holy Spirit, originating from the Holy Spirit. That it's only through the supernatural and mysterious conception of Christ by God the Spirit himself that Jesus could be born from the womb of a virgin. We've already seen that God the Spirit was involved. How about God the Father? Last night we read from John chapter 1 and verse 14 reminds us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Romans 8.3, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In Galatians 4.4, again, God sent forth His Son. So I think those are pretty obvious. Mary, the Spirit, and the Father. But have you ever thought about the actions of the Son of God to bring about His own incarnation? We've already seen it. Philippians 2.7, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. That in this moment of time, the Son of God went from glorious to the size of a pencil dot. He went from magnificent to being of no account in his appearance. He went from angels shouting his threefold holy, holy, holiness to people he created shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Philippians 2.7 is so important for us to understand that the submission of the Son to the will of the Father was voluntary. and It was done out of love for the Father and out of love for you. So the incarnation was not just something that happened to the Son of God. It was something He was actively involved in, an accomplishment on His part. And so we can rightly pray a triune prayer. Thank you, Father, for the incarnation of Christ. Thank you, Spirit, for the incarnation of Christ. And thank you, Jesus, for coming to us of your own will. Why do we believe in the virgin birth? We've seen that. Who was involved in the virgin birth? All three members of the Trinity and Mary. Last question. What is the significance of the virgin birth? What's the significance of the virgin birth? Some might wonder if the virgin birth has any theological significance. Is it just some sort of parlor trick that God did to impress us? Well, our initial answer has to be that the extraordinary and supernatural quality of the birth of Christ demands that there is theological importance. And in fact, the virgin birth gives guarantees from God related to your forgiveness, related to your salvation. And I'd like to just give you three of them. Three guarantees from God related to your forgiveness and salvation. The first guarantee, you will never be separated from God. You will never be separated from God. How does the virgin birth have anything to do with that fact? Well, Isaiah 7 predicted and Matthew 1 confirmed that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not so much a name as it is a fact. Now, we often emphasize the God part, but maybe not so often the with us part. The virgin birth wasn't necessary from God's vantage point because he's infinite, he's all-powerful, he's not dependent in any way on the virgin birth for Jesus to be God. God has always been God. Jesus has always been God. But the virgin birth was necessary from our vantage point so that we could know that he is God. 
And by means of the virgin conception and birth, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He came to us forever as one of us without ever ceasing to be fully God. And how important is this? Listen, it becomes really, really important during your last heartbeat, during your last breath, when that moment when you realize you're about to cross the divide from the mortal to the immortal. Why is it so important? Listen, Because you already know that when you meet God, He will be someone like you. That when Stephen was dying at the hands of wicked men and the glorious vision that was before him was of a man, Jesus Christ, standing to greet Stephen. You need not worry about some weird tunnel with a light at the end of it. You need not worry about ethereal floating around in space. The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be at home with whom? The Lord, a man. There's a second guarantee that the virgin birth gives us. Your sin debt is paid in full. Your sin debt is paid in full. Now I need to take kind of a long way around this so follow the logic here. The Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Christ. There's reasonable evidence that the sin nature of mankind is passed down through the Father beginning with Adam But it's not necessary to make a super hard stand on that, particularly since Mary was a sinner. We know this, and she said she needed a Savior. We also would note that in Psalm 51, verse 5, David attributes his sin nature to his mother. You know that the Roman Catholic position is that since Jesus is sinless, then Mary herself had to be sinless. And thus the idolatrous worship of Mary continues in full force today. It's really gaining steam even today. But that so-called solution doesn't solve the the mystery of the sinlessness of Christ. Because if Mary was sinless, if we follow the same logic, then who else needed to be sinless? Her parents. And now you have an exponential theological problem that hits a wall really fast. Instead, it's better to say that the Holy Spirit ensured the sinlessness of Christ by preventing the transmission of sin from Joseph. This was John Calvin's position. He said, quote, We make Christ free of all stain, not just because he was begotten of his mother without a man, but because he was sanctified by the Spirit that the generation might be pure and undefiled as would have been true before Adam's fall. So what does the sinlessness of Christ guaranteed at the virgin birth have to do with ensuring that your sin debt is paid in full? Well, any sacrifice for your sin must have a perfect eternal sacrifice who is the opposite of your sin-ridden life. You needed a perfect sacrifice and Jesus as a sinless man was the perfect sacrifice and the virgin birth guarantees he was sinless. What does it mean? It means that you need never worry if you were at the cross. The cross alone is enough. Nothing else is necessary for salvation. And there's a third guarantee. The virgin birth guarantees that your salvation is supernaturally from God alone. It guarantees that your salvation is supernaturally from God alone. And I understand and we we love our Arminian brothers and sisters who, who believe that somehow they had a part in their salvation. But let me present this logic to you in all love. The virgin birth demonstrates that God is able to accomplish the apparently impossible work of giving new birth to sinners like you and me. 
God promised the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, would crush and destroy Satan. God brought this about by his power, not by any human effort. The virgin birth shouts that salvation never came by human effort, but must be by God's work alone. Because this is how the human, how the, the virgin birth happened. The virgin birth happened in the same way your spiritual birth happened. Mary did not ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon her. He just did. And in the same way, Jesus said in John 3, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Did Mary have any part in deciding to be the mother of Jesus? No, she was just informed that that's what's going to happen. We've looked at the self-emptying of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ. I'd like to close our first session this morning by asking you to listen to two heart-searching questions. Because these doctrines matter and they matter greatly. The first question concerns the virgin birth. Has the virgin birth of Christ informed your faith? That's my question. Has the virgin birth of Christ informed your faith See, the virgin birth challenges the readers of both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel to immediately see and believe the the miraculous nature of the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus. And right up front, right at the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, it becomes a litmus test of someone's position on the Bible, on the miraculous events of the Bible. When you read of the virgin birth, you're confronted immediately with the divine with the unexplainable for which the only right response is to believe God and to trust the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. Why is this so important? Because as you walk through Matthew's gospel, the reader is also required to believe by faith in a savior who heals the sick of fatal organic diseases, instantly calms storms, commands demons to obey him, forgives sin, heals quadriplegics, raises dead girls, restores sight to blind men, restores speech to the mute, predicts his own death and resurrection, then willingly dies and purposefully raises himself from the dead. And in Luke's gospel, You as the reader are also required to believe by faith in the Savior who can save the unsavable, the lowest of the low. That Christ can save a Gentile Roman governor named Theophilus even though it was a Gentile Roman governor named Pontius Pilate who condemned Jesus to death. That Jesus can save people infested with demons, the lowest of society like tax collectors, a a Gentile's lowly servant, the dead son of a widow and prostitutes and a woman forgotten by society with a 12-year-long illness and so many more that if God can send his son by means of the virgin birth and can save the worst of the worst, the least likely, then God can save you and me as well. But if you cannot believe the virgin birth, then you ought to beware. If you believe that the virgin birth is impossible, then you've just exposed your lack of belief in God and in the scriptures by which God is revealed. Because frankly, reading through Matthew and Luke, the virgin birth is kind of the easiest thing to believe. Our second question concerns the self-emptying of Christ, the kenosis. And here's my question. Has the self-emptying of Christ 
put you in your place? Has the self-emptying of Christ put you in your place? The kenosis takes us far beyond a trite and surface philosophy of living. What would Jesus do? Because if the idea of living as Jesus lived, of doing what Jesus did, starts with, for example, his ministry in which he did demonstrate grace and truth and kindness, this is a, a huge disservice to part of the point of the kenosis because we've subtracted from the whole of who Jesus is. Understanding and contemplating the depths to which Jesus descended from the unspeakable and matchless glory that he had with his Father to come all the way down to humble obedience and to horrible suffering, it gives a a fuller picture of Christ and promotes him less as the nicest of guys of all history as our example and focuses more on the shocking willingness of God to descend from the heights of glory down to the degradation of humanity. And not just the degradation of humanity, but the degradation of death. And not just the degradation of death, but a death that is humiliating. That he died as one accused of being a criminal. Philippians 2, the whole reason for Paul's explanation of the self-emptying of Christ is that you are to have this mind among yourselves. That's his reason. No matter how humble you think you've made yourself, you will never attain to the humility of Christ. And so it's correct to say that you cannot overly humble yourself. In the 1970s, a man by the name of James Garrett, who was an elder in the church in the Midwest, and he preached a simple sermon. It was just called the Dulas Principle. And he preached this sermon, and he was so overwhelmed by requests for notes from that sermon that he eventually turned it into a little book by the same name, the Dulas Principle. It's taken from the Greek word for slave, and it's used not only in Philippians 2.7, that Christ took the form of, of a slave, but used elsewhere in the New Testament as well. The book was the result of his own experience of having to humbly submit himself to the total lordship of Christ. And here was his situation. His wife had been seriously ill for two decades. And as a result of the way health insurance worked back in the 60s and 70s, his entire family was denied health insurance. And in 1970, in the span of 12 months, his wife and all five of his children were hospitalized and nearly died, all for different reasons. One child was bitten by seven snakes and nearly died. Another had an allergic reaction to a medication and nearly died. Another was in a terrible accident with horrible injuries and nearly died. And Crawford spent all of 1970 in the hospital with his family. By the end of the year, he owed more money to hospitals and doctors than he could have paid back in 10 lifetimes. And one night, the despair in his heart was too much to bear And he fell on his face before the Lord, just weeping uncontrollably, begging God for help and for mercy and for guidance. And as James prayed, a single Greek word came into his mind and heart. He was very familiar with Greek as a Bible teacher. And that word was doulos, slave. He began to meditate there, literally laying in a puddle of his own tears. What does it mean that I am a doulos of Christ? And as James characterized this meditation as a conversation with God. He wasn't claiming any special revelation or that God was audibly speaking, but he just just wrote it in this fashion. Simple, logical answers based on the already revealed scriptures. And here's how he characterized this time with the Lord. 
the scripture, as it were, asks the question, who owns a slave? His master, I answered. Who owns a slave's family? His master, I answered. Who owns the clothing that a slave and his family wear? His master, I answered. How much money does a slave have? I I thought for a moment and then answered, only that which his master chooses for him to have. If the slave's master determined the experience of the slave and his family and if debts occur and if a slave does not have any money of his own, then how many debts can a slave have? I replied, none. They are the debts of the one who owns him, his master. And he said at that moment, he surrendered his heart and he said to God, you are my master and I am your slave. This is not a promotion of of anti-lordship salvation or anything like this. This is just him growing into the fact that he was so overwhelmed with Literally, the debts of this world. That it was only in confessing that he is a slave that revolutionized his life. And he writes that a flood of peace and joy came upon him. And from that moment on, he made it his life's mission to teach anyone who would listen that to follow Christ is to be a slave of Christ as the New Testament teaches well over 100 times. And don't we have a wonderful example? Jesus came in the form of a doulos, a slave, and as such is our example of humility, and we'll never attain to that example. The kenosis in the gospel of Christ demands humility because that's the reality of our position, and it's a beautiful position. A proud Christian who is constantly thinking about himself and his feelings and how situations affect him absolutely cannot walk in joy because you can't sin and be joyful at the same time. It's one or the other. And just as one last reminder, how did Jesus suffer as a result of his self-emptying? He suffered his entire life. He suffered insults growing up with his neighbors thinking he was an illegitimate child. He suffered rejection from his own hometown He suffered rebellion from the leaders of the city and nation he came to save. He suffered knowing the judgment that must be brought on his people for their rejection of him. He suffered in his temptation beyond what any human ever has. He suffered in five attempts on his life before allowing the last one to succeed. He suffered in his trials and his torture. He suffered in the false accusations to which he made no answer. He suffered in his death and he even suffered in his burial because everyone thought he was a criminal. So my two questions for all of us. Has the self-emptying of Christ put you in your place? And has the virgin birth informed your faith? And my prayer is that these great and mighty doctrines would never be merely an academic exercise, but truths which inform your walk with Christ and put you and put me in my, our place, and that is on our faces before a holy God. That's the only appropriate place for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and many other scriptures about the virgin birth. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity of Philippians 2, that magnificent pillar of the self-emptying of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would never take for granted what it meant for Christ to become a man. That we would never take for granted that he went from holy, holy, holy 
to be in the size of a dot in his mother's womb. May we be greater worshipers as a result. May Christ be exalted in our hearts more than ever before. And we pray these things for his glory and in his name. Amen.